Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. We've got a slight schedule change to the scheduled episode. I know I promised last time that I would do another tale, probably a wintry one, and then we would look at the food and folklore of Christmas of another country. Now, the problem is I just haven't had the time. I'm really, really sorry and I hate to disappoint you. So I thought what I'd do is I would share three lovely uplifting tales with you. I just really enjoy them. Um, They're a little bit different. They're all um, all, um, English, I suppose. Yes, they are all English. Um, We're going to do those three tales. I'll introduce them all separately so that you know where they're from. And if you want to follow up on maybe the books, um, you can have and go and have a look for yourself to find out the ones where I've adapted them from. Um, After um, this episode, there will be a short break over Christmas and New Year so I can have a little rest and hopefully come back to you with the podcast that you normally expect. Um, I'm hoping to be back towards the end of January and I'll update you um, at the beginning of the new season and giving you an update on when it's going to come out. Our first tale is called Food and Fire and Company. It's from originally from Somerset and I read it first in a book um, called Forgotten Folk Tales of the English Counties by Catherine Briggs and Ruth Tung. Um, it's a really good book, actually, really interesting with some fantastic tales in it. Um, I think if you can dig it out, if you can get a copy, it's really good and I would re- heartily recommend it. But let's start with our story. An old woman lived one in a cottage on a hillside somewhere. It was a very small cottage, just a one door, one window and a small garden in which the old woman could grow a few herbs. The cottage had a good stout door and window and a roof of stone slabs that kept out the rain and a very well-swept floor. She was an incredibly clean and tidy old lady and in the corner she had dry brushwood and some pile of turves which the farmer bought her when he remembered. He was a kind man but forgetful. Besides the turves he sometimes bought her straw or hay to make herself a soft bed and the farmer's wife set an old stew pot freshly cleaned but just a little battered to hang on the crook in the chimney over her fire and a mended patchwork quilt for her bed so she could be snug and warm. So there she was with a warm soft bed and a fire, four stout walls and a good roof overhead. She had a wooden bowl and two wooden spoons that the farmer's boy had carved for her and porridge to eat when the farmer remembered. And one day the tin man came by with a loaded cart at gallop. He was running away from the gamekeepers for he had a load of ducks and rabbits underneath all of his tins. The old woman went to her gate as the keepers came up. And there in the road was a nice tin mug that had rolled off the cart. He won't come back this way any more, said the gamekeeper, if he knows what's good for him. So you best have it. Put it in your nice little house. Very clean and comfortable, that is. The old woman smiled at him and then she sighed a little. I'm really lucky, I am, she said. I've four stout walls and a good roof and a good door, a warm bed and a fire, and I'm making a twig broom to sweep the hearth. But I wouldn't mind a bit of company. The gamekeepers went again again. But the first one brought another armful of dry branches for her, and the other took a flat cake from his bag and put it on the window seat. Food and fire and company, he said. There you've got all three. After they'd gone, the old woman broke the sticks neatly and put them in their corner, and made up the fire and filled the stew pot with spring water, and shook up the bed nicely, and swept the floor with a bunch of fern, and everything was clean and tidy again. So she put her last handful of meal in the pot to make a warm gruel for the morning, in case the farmer forgot to bring her sackful. Very dusty stuff, meal, she said. I must make another twig broom tomorrow. Then she drank some fresh spring water from the stream at the end of her garden from the tin mug and broke off a bit of the flat cake 
and went to bed. The next day the farmer came. His wife had thankfully remembered, although he definitely hadn't, and he bought meal and a goose wing to sweep the hearth and a small gooseberry bush for the garden and a battered wooden bucket for water. But it was half full of new milk. There, said the farmer, now you've got four stout walls, a door, a good roof, a good fire, food and drink, and a soft bed. What more can you want? But he didn't remember to ask for any rent, and thankfully he never did. What a busy time I'm having, said the old woman when he'd gone. Two visitors yesterday, another one today. I really wish they'd stay for a bit, for company. But... I'll make a dish of milk porridge, that's what I'll do, and while it cooks, I'll tidy up. So she made enough porridge for two, and hung it to cook over the bright fire, swept the hearth with a goose wing, and carried it out the bed to air in the sun, while she took a big stick, and dug a hole for the new gooseberry brush, and planted it. Then she carried back her soft straw bed, and the quilt, and shook it up in its corner, spread the quilt over it, and swept all the bits of hay off the floor, with a goose wing into the fire, and she was quite ready to sit in her window seat and drink warm milk and a tin mug, nibble a bit more of that flat cake bread, and count all of her blessings. How lucky I am, she said. I've got a beautiful spring at the end of my garden, a gooseberry bush, a good door, four stout walls to keep out the cold, and a good roof, a good soft bed, a good fire, a nice pot full of milk porridge, and half of the gamekeeper's flat cake a new bowl, a tin mug, two spoons. But the farmer forgot the turves and there were only four left. I must be really careful. The sun is warm, so I'll go to bed warm too. But I'd really like someone to come and share it. So before she went to bed, she poured out half of the milk porridge into the bowl and set a bit of the cake beside it and put it outside the door and called out into the listening dark. Come and eat a bit. You're very welcome, whoever you are. I'm afraid there isn't much... When she opened the door in the morning, the bowl was empty, and the bit of cake was gone. Now, who took that, I wonder, she said. They're very welcome, but I'd really like their company a little bit. Now, four miles away, on the other side of the valley, which may have been the other side of the moon, as far as the old lady was concerned, was the manor house. It was hundreds of years old, and everyone said it was really lucky. It had a great garden full of roses, and the scent of the red ones came on the wind across to the old woman, and was so lovely she could have stood sniffing it all day. But today, there was no scent at all. Maybe it's the rain, she said. Hmm. She felt that it wasn't, and her feelings were usually quite true. I'll be soaked standing here. And when the farmer came, he was soaked too. And so were the turves his wife had reminded him to bring. And of course he couldn't keep the cart horse standing in the rain. And he was off and away so fast. But he did pass on a bit of news first. The old squire died in London. And a rich London refuse come to the manor with a parcel of fine city servants. The old servants won't work for him since he's turned out all the luck. Well, whatever did he do? Well, he found the bowl of milk and the bit of bread put by for, for you know who as has been done for hundreds of years, and he threw it to his dog. Things won't prosper for him, and he won't get any of his fine servants to stay there. The old woman felt quite upset at this news, but with the wet turves and the farmer's boots had made such a mess, and she was bent double with the aches in her bones, it took her nearly all day. I'll bake a couple of flat cakes, she said. They'll take off my aches and pains. So she kneaded the bread and laid them to cook on the warm hearth. 
Then she remembered to put out the tin mug and the last of the keeper's cake and call out her welcome. I shall have porridge and cake of my own, she thought. But the rain fell and the tires wouldn't catch and the fire just smouldered and the old woman sat and shivered. Then, out of the night, came a strange voice and something scratched on her door. Oh, dear, oh, where can I go in rain and snow? Oh, dear, oh, what can I do? Let me come in and stay with you. Poor thing, said the old woman. I'll ask it in, out of the rain. Then she thought a bit. It might be a ghost. Well, the poor thing needs comfort instead of wondering about, even if it is a ghost. It might be something else. But she called out bravely, come in and welcome whoever you are, though the fire's not burning very well. And her thin brown hand slid round the door, and something else slid round it too. The old woman hobbled to close the door, and out of the corner of her eye saw something small and brownish slither along the wall and up into the chimney. The rain poured in, and the wind blew round until she'd barred the door. There was just a spark in the embers, so she blew them into a faint glow and crawled into bed. You chose a good spot, if it's still warm, she called out. But the fire won't light us and warm us tonight. I'm really sorry, but there's no porridge for you. I didn't have any either. Then she pulled her blanket, her lovely quilt over her, still shivering, and went to sleep. She woke, suddenly, and lay there watching a warm light that glowed in the cottage and flickered on the rafters as it held the roof lamp and slabs in place. Where did the light come from? And what was that lovely smell of baking? She sat up, puzzled. The fire was flaming. The porridge was cooking. The two cakes were brown and smelling lovely. And there was a neat pile of brown, dry turves stacked near the fire. Alma looked and looked, and then she called out, Thank you kindly, whoever you are. Now we'll have a bit of supper. And she got up and poured out the milk porridge into two portions, put one cake into one of the bowls to a stand on the hearth, and ate the rest herself. Oh, she was so hungry. Then she called out again, Thank you kindly, and went back to bed and fell fast asleep. In the morning the sun was shining, and there came a knock at the door, and there was the farmer. You sleep late, he said. My missus wants to know if you've such a thing as a rosebud in your hedge. She wants it for the well dressing down in the village. It's a pity you live so far out of the village. With that lovely flat rock over your spring, you could make a fine picture in flower petals for the judges to see. Ah, oh, the old woman sighed. I can't stoop to pick them, and I can't climb to get them. And though I'd like to make a fine picture with the flowers over my stream, here's a rose for your missus. When it went away, she sighed again. That would have been something to think about. I do love flowers, and the well-dressing is so pretty to see. But dear, dear, how late it's getting. I must get tidied up and bake some more cakes when I've got the fire going. When she went in, the fire was burning, but it had been backed. There were two cakes on the hearth, her bed was made, and the floor was swept. She was so surprised, she just sat down and ate her breakfast without saying another word. I'm going to have some time to do a bit in the garden, she said when she'd finished. I wonder what I could do if I could find a flower or two from, from my rock. And then she opened the door again, and the cottage was filled with a gorgeous scent. Oh, how beautiful those manor roses scent in the morning air. You'd almost think they were at my gate. And that was exactly where they were. Great piles of crimson velvety petals, heaped in little leaps, heaped neatly beside her spring. And there were other flowers too. 
blues and yellows and whites and pinks. The old woman gave a gasp of joy. Then she spread wet clay on the rock and set to work. No one's going to come this way, she said, but I'll just see if I can get finished before the church bells ring. But the judges won't see it. But she thinks it was worth it anyway. So she worked and she worked and someone must have helped her. For she just finished putting the last petal into place when the church bells rang out and she heard voices. It was the farmer's cart with the judges in it and he had brought them round this way to the village so that the old woman might have a peep at them. He really was a kind man, even if he could forget his own head if it wasn't attached. They did more than take a peep. When they saw the rock and the spring and they smelt the scent of those red rose petals, they all said together that it was beautiful. And then they went away. In the evening, they came back, and some of the villagers too, and they gave the old woman the prize. Three, three silver pennies. Here and your petals, said the villagers. If you could run about, I'd say you'd walk eight miles to pick those roses. There isn't a single red rose in all the manor gardens today, not one. And the new sky is so angry. He went back to London after he'd given the judges lunch. He was so sure he was going to win the three silver pennies all his great gardens against our little bit. I'm glad you got it, living all alone as you do. The old woman just smiled at them, and the farmer drove off with them. And then she went indoors again, and she looked at that fire banked just gently and the steaming porridge and the cakes baking on the hearth the pile of turfs and her neatly made bed the floor had been swept she put her three silver pennies on the window seat and sat down to her supper. how lucky i am she said at last here i sit with food and fire and company thank you kindly whoever you and that is the end of that tale one of the rare ones where thanking the fair folk is a good thing. In our next tale, those fair folk are not as friendly. This tale is called The Weardale Fairies, and it's from Durham in the very north of England. I found it in the Book of English Folk Tales by Sybil Marshall, and that's where I've adapted it from. But I know there's been a couple more recent adaptations um, that are really good, so you could look for the story elsewhere. Um, if you struggle to find the Sybil Marshall one. If you're listening comfortably, I'll begin. Everyone knew there were fairies in the dale, though few had ever seen them. Spread out all over the hill were tiny little outcroppings of rock that you could see at a glance if you were in the know were their strongholds, towers, keeps, battlements and all. Among these were little caves that ran back into the hillside, where fairies met at night to hold their revels of music and laughter, singing and dancing. People coming home late at night said they heard their silvery voices and caught the sound of their laughter borne on the breeze. But it was well known that they were not always as pleasant as they sounded, for they were touchy, jealous little folk who could not bear to be spied on and had their own ways of punishing any humans who trespassed on their grounds. Close by the town of Stanhope lived a farmer, the joy of whose life was his one child, a beautiful little girl who was pretty and dainty, almost enough to be a fairy herself. One day the little girl went out to play and wandered down to the river, among all the banks where the primroses were in full bloom, after gathering as many as her little hands would hold, because she had so loved the colours, she set off up the hillside. But as she passed one of the little caves, she heard the sound of tiny voices and music. 
and sounds of laughter and joyfulness. Drawn by those sounds, she bent and had to look. The fairies were dancing and playing and it filled her with delight and fascinated by the tiny creatures she ventured further into the cave. At once the fairies saw her, they disappeared, so she ran away home, desperate to tell her father of her just wonderful experience. But her father listened to her tale in petrified terror, for he knew what such an intrusion would mean. And he knew what form of punishment would take. Once a mortal had caught sight of them, that mortal knew their secrets, and that they would not stand for. The only way to silence a mortal was to make them disappear, so that their own kind never set eyes on them again. The farmer knew he had no time to waste, for the fairies might strike at any moment and whisk his little girl, his loved little girl, away from him forever. He said nothing of his fears to the child, because he was a good father, but he set out at once for the only person who'd ever been known to outwit any of the good folk, a wise woman in the next village. She listened gravely and did her best to help. They will come and fetch her, said the wise woman, and they will come soon. Tonight, about midnight, is the time to be feared, and there's only one way to stop them from carrying her off. They cannot work their magic where there is no sound at all. If you can manage to keep your house in perfect silence, around midnight, all may be well. The farmer hurried home, turning over in his mind as he went about all the things at the house and the buildings that might break the stillness of the night. Then, as soon as the little girl was tucked up in bed, he made his preparations. First, he went to the farmyard, unless there was anything there that would break the silence. He cooped up all the chickens in the dark, barring every door and shutter to keep out a single ray of moonlight that might wake them or flutter their wings or utter just a sleepy squawk. Horses were tethered in their stalls with their halters and thick straw spread around their great hoofs to muffle any sound of movement. In the cow barn, all the metal chains were taken away and anything that could be knocked or kicked over removed and all the doors were closed tight to stifle the sound of any gentle moose coming from the cattle. Then the tarm dogs were fed, as they were rarely fed, on so much meat and so much milk until they couldn't eat any more and then they were all kenneled into a very small kennel to sleep off their heavy meal. Gates were silenced, doors were fastened and wedged lest weak breeze should make them rattle the pigsties were filled with straw until their pigs and the troughs were nearly buried beneath it. The farmer then turned his attention to the house. He stopped all the clocks and covered the cage bird his daughter loved with a big glass to prevent it from singing. And at midnight drew closer. He even extinguished the fire lest a log should fall or a bit of burning wood spit and crack. And he took his own shoes off lest his feet would make a shuffle on the hearthstone. And time on. When the last stroke of midnight had fallen from the church clock in the nearby town, he heard them coming, and it was as if his heart stood still and might never start again. He heard the tiny noises of their tiny ponies' hooves as they rode up over the cobbles up to his front door. He sensed their bewilderment as the deathly silence in the house and the farmyard and the countryside surrounding it threatened to wreck their plans. But even as he had that tiny bit of hope flared up that all might be well, the yapping of a dog fell on his ear like doom. He'd forgotten his little girl's own pet dog, 
who loved her and protected her and always slept on the foot of her bed and detecting a strange presence had as he should warned of danger the farmer leapt to his feet and raced up the stairs the bed was empty except for the little dog who was greatly wielded and the child was gone grief-stricken and bereft he sat to watch for the dawn and as soon as it broke he set off again to the home of the wise woman perhaps even now there was some way there must be some way he could win his little darling back if only he knew how to go about it the wise woman was full of sympathy and even commended him for his courage in not accepting defeat without at least another try nothing is easy and the task will be even more than difficult but there is a way you must go by yourself to the cave where your daughter first saw the fairies do you know where that is the farmer did he had every single bit of the conversation with his daughter after she'd seen the fairies burned into his brain with the terror of what she had told him right you must take with you these things wear first a sprig of rowan wood on your smock for rowan is a sovereign charm against harm of any kind from those of that kind at least then you must carry three things something that gives light without burning a live chicken without a bone in its body and the limb of a living animal that has been given to you without the loss of a single drop of blood if you give those things to the king of the fairies he must and will return your daughter to you but he will not do it willingly the father gave her thanks and left he did have a tiny tiny spark of hope but it was so tiny i didn't even think it would light into anything like a flame and how was it possible to get three impossible things a light that that didn't come from burning a live chicken without a bone and, and a part of a living animal game without shedding blood as he trudged homeward his heart grew heavier with every step and he didn't know which way to turn he was momentarily roused from the depths of despair by a voice by the wayside and looking down he saw a beggar as thin and hungry as a skeleton stretched out on the grass please help me please help me gasped the beggar i am faint with age and hunger and i can't go any further without food can you help me sir before it's too late the father heaved some a huge sigh and felt in his pockets just for, for coin i can and i will he said for though i am yet strong and hearty i have troubles of my own and i know what it is to need help and he tossed a coin to the beggar and prepared to move on thank you indeed said the beggar in a very different but much stronger voice you have given help willingly and it's now my turn to help you what you need is a glowworm a glowworm will give you light but it will never burn that's the answer to your first problem the farmer stood staring at the beggar dumbfounded with amazement how would a beggar know what he needed and how would he know exactly what to say but even as he looked the form of the beggar grew less and less well of this world and the outlines of his figure then disappeared completely and he had vanished vanished into thin air he was so shocked by this extraordinary happening and cheered by the knowledge that at least he had the answer to one question that he strode on with a lot more purpose than before it wasn't long before he reached the outskirts of a little wood 
Hearing a frightened squawk and noting a flurrying of wings, he stopped and looked above him. A thrush was darting, darting this way and that, and in terror of a kestrel that hovered directly above, with beak and sharp talons at the ready for the kill, when he would drop like a stone on his prey. Taking in the situation at once, the farmer stooped swiftly and picked up a stone. With an elegant aim, he let slide the stone at the kestrel, which, seeing him before it hit him, turned and made off with beating wings to hover in search of another meal. The thrush settled on the badge of a horse thorn close by the farmer and settled its ruffled feathers. Then, to his great astonishment, the bird spoke. I owe you my thanks, it said. You've saved my life by giving help just when I most needed it. So, now I'm going to help you. It's what you need. What you need is an egg that has been sat on for 15 days. And by that time, it'll have a live chicken but there won't be a bone in its body. The farmer was so astounded that he couldn't find his voice, and in delight he turned towards the thrush, which looked at his head on one side, regarded him with a very bright little eye, and rippled out its silvery song to him three times over. And then, like the beggar before him, it dissolved into nothingness. But now he had the answer to two out of three of his problems. His step was almost light as he thought about the third one, although this one was definitely the most difficult of all. His attention was caught by a despairing shriek from the bottom of a wall, and looking over the wall, he saw among the long grass a rabbit kicking a trap because he was trapped in a snare. He leapt the wall, and in a moment had let the strangled little creature cree. It lay panting on its side for a moment, and then recovered itself and sat up on its haunches. The farmer had expected it to lolf away as fast as it could, but he was growing quite used now to being surprised by strange things and listened with growing hope as he spoke to him. One good turn deserves another, said the rabbit. I think, sir, that I can help you, for I know the answer to your last problem. If you grasp a lizard by its tail, it will escape by leaving the whole of its tail in your hand and not one drop of blood will be shed. Then, for the third time on that amazing day, the farmer just stirred as the rabbit vanished, like the like the thrush and the beggar before him, just gone, gone in thin air, nothing. But his heart was as light as his step now as he hurried. So he must still collect the gifts for the fairy king. He now knew what to look for. He had a broody hen already sitting on a clutch of eggs, each one carefully marked with a date on which it was put under her. A few days more and the 15th day would come and then he would take it from the nest an egg containing a live chicken that yet had no bone in its body. As such, the lane by the side of his farm yielded no less than three glowworms, gleaming bright and green at the root of an old tree. They gave enough light to see by, such a beautiful light, as it certainly didn't burn him. Next day, as he was out on the hills, he waited till a lizard crept out to sit on a stone and bask in the afternoon creeping as quietly as a mouse. In spite of his large build, he came silently behind the stone and pounced on the lizard's tail. He felt a wriggle and a jerk and the lizard was gone like a flash of emerald, but he held its tail in his hand. Oh, there was not even the slightest sign of blood upon it. Overjoyed, he stuck a sprig of roan bush in the bosom of his jacket and another in his cap for good luck and as soon as the egg was ready, away he went to seek the fairy's cake. 
His daughter had described it so carefully that he had little difficulty in finding it, and bending down, he called to let them know he was there and what he wanted. They rushed to the entrance of the cave, but when they saw that sprig of rowan, they recoiled, for their power to harm him in any way was completely defeated by it. So they called their king to deal with a mortal stranger. You know, fails the king's fall. And then he came, the farmer asked him for his daughter back. The king of the fairies had opened his mouth to say, well, no, no, she came here. She did what we told her not to do, and we've stolen her. She's ours. He sort of felt his mouth open to say those things. But he didn't have a chance because the farmer laid before him the glowworms, the egg and the lizard's tail. Next moment, the fairies had gone, just gone. And his daughter came from the mouth of the cave and straight into his arms. Thankfully, she was totally unharmed. And they were soon at home, eating dripping toast off the hot fire and looking lovingly at each other. But that little girl knows better now than to pick primroses, which are the fairies' special flowers or to peep inside their caves, however enticing the music might be to her ears. And that, gentle listener, is the end of that tale. And now we go back to our final tale. This is, again, from Lost Folk Tales, sorry, Forgotten Folk Tales of the English Counties by Catherine Briggs and Ruth Tung. This one is, well, it's incredibly seasonal. Uh, you'll get it from the tale itself. Even if Christianity isn't necessarily your thing, I think you'll enjoy it anyway because it's so sweet and beautiful. It's called Room for a Little One from the Wiltshire and Somerset borders. Bridget was the little maid at the huge inn where all the travellers came. And she was on her little feet from, well, dawn till midnight. She running up and down with everything she had to do in the kitchens. And if that wasn't enough, she had to be off and gather the wood from the forest and bring it in for the fires. Big loads too. They had, well, with some kindness, possibly for their own ends, thinking to give her a little donkey so that she could bring two loads at once back home. And when all the other travellers were warm, in fact, all the other servants as well, were warm and snoring hours since, she just about finished the washing and the cleaning and the polishing of the silver and making up all the fires. And then she went out shivering in her bare feet to the little donkey stable to get warm again. She curled herself up against the little donkey's rough coat. It was a very tiny donkey and a very small stable. Really, just an old shed with that sort of old thatch that was so thinning in places that they get to see the stars as they shine through. And there was room for a little one. And they both of it made it there and contrived to sleep until the cock crow. But one night was bitter and cold and snow, full of snow and frost. And the inn was full right up to the attics with the stables full of beasts as well. Bridget and the donkey came back just, you know how that feels, numb to the bone and so loaded down with dricks they couldn't see anything under the fire wood but their feet and they were like blue ice blocks and there in the yard was a tired, muddy, hungry old ox left without a mouthful of hay or shelter moved out of his old little barn for someone's horse and he was freezing to death and they couldn't have that I've got a stable, said the donkey, and there's a bit of hay too, said Bridget. It's ours, 
and it's only small, but there's room for a little one. The ox took a look at it. One big star was shining down into the yard and into the stable too, and somehow it did look as though it would have enough room for the donkey, the girl and the ox. And somehow it was. And somehow there was quite a lot of hay inside as well. So Bridget let the donkey creep in too and went away to make up the fire. She saw the little feet a little bit that way and then, would you believe it, they said they need more wood, more wood. Back to the big black forest, she and the poor little donkey must trudge again in all the bitter wind and frost. So she went to tell the little donkey, and he nearly cried, she nearly cried when she did. This little tiny thing was so stiff, and as numb as she was. It'll be really black dark, said Bridget, and I'm that scared to go. I have a cross on my back, said the donkey, speaking up bravely, and that there star shining above us will show us the way, said the old fox comforting. I'll come back to if you like, then you'll only be needing one great big load. So, tired to death as they were, and still cold, they went out into the forest. Bridget had a slice of stale bread that she saved from the pig bucket, and the donkey and the ox were still chewing a bit of hay. It wasn't much, but it's something to keep them from starving, and they managed to get their load of wood. Then they all saw someone underneath the starlight, a man and a woman it was and they were so tired probably as tired as the donkey the ox and the little girl the man was helping the woman who could hardly walk she needs shelter said bridget and food and a bed and there's no room at the inn there's my stable said the little donkey underneath his great load of wood and room for a little one said the ox shivering as he staggered so the man he took the little little donkey's wood and the woman rode on a tired, careful little back. So careful the little donkey was. And they all found that they were going back to the inn quite fast in the starlight. Then Bridget saw the man and the woman go thankfully into the little stable. And they called in the little donkey and the ox inside. And they all called out to Bridget standing in the snow and the starshine in her bare feet. There's one for a little one. I'll come, my dears, when I've done my work, said Bridget. And away she went and dragged the wood to the hearth where the ox's master lay, having had too much to drink. And she washed and she cleared up. And she found a big chunk of bread and cheese that was probably meant for someone's breakfast, but she didn't care. She decided to take it out along with her. She had an idea they'd be hungry in that stable. And the star shone as bright as if it were dancing. And Bridget's feet, which a moment ago had been so tired they danced too. So she ran out to the stable, which was lit as though bright sunshine, but just by that big star. And God's tiny baby son was now there too, with the others. And there were angels singing, and the oxen and the donkey were singing too. And that, gentle listener, is the end of my tale. And I hope you enjoyed it, for it had no other purpose. We're also nearing the end of the episode. I really hope you've enjoyed those three stories. I just felt with the world the way it is now, we could do with something gentle and uplifting and basically the equivalent of a well, the story equivalent of a lovely warm fire and a lovely warm drink. 
this is the last episode of the season and as I mentioned at the beginning I'm going to have a little break for a few weeks um, but then we'll come back with something new and hopefully wonderful in the new year um, sort of mid to late January I will let you all know when that's coming if you subscribe you will get it straight away if you don't you're going to have to come and hunt me down you should be able to find me quite easily I am on all of the podcast platforms probably all of the podcast platforms um, but also you can find me on Twitter and also on Instagram, mostly on Twitter, but they're both at Fairy Tales Food. Or you can come and pay me a visit on my website, which has all of the old podcasts as well as all the recipes. Um, there are also um, on some of the different blog posts some quite cool old recipe um, sort of images and things for you to look at in case that sort of thing interests you. As I said, um, you can get in touch with me via my website or via Instagram or Twitter and I hope to wish you all a wonderful winter season. I hope everyone gets um, whatever festival it is that you celebrate at this time. I hope it's as good as it can be and I look forward to seeing you all in the new year. And that'll be it, the end of this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tale.